Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 51. Today, I have the pleasure of re-interviewing Dr. Paul Smolin, Doc Smo. Paul and I get together today to sit down and talk about parenting, and in specific, the work around his book. The book is entitled, Great Kids Don't Just Happen, Five Essentials for Raising Successful Children. And so by the title, you can tell what we're going to really sort of look at. It's going to be Paul's observational view and his scientific understanding of the literature as to what makes the best outcome for our children based on his view of the world. And so with that, let's sit down with Paul Smolin and discuss his book and his thoughts on raising children. Well, hey, Paul, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. It's absolute pleasure as always. So how are you? I'm great. And I'm so appreciative that you've invited me back. <laughs> it's been, well, what, uh, two years, a year and a half since we talked last time uh, on no. the podcast? I think it'd be was your first we, podcast. We did the first one and then we did the book review. Right. On, uh, Melinda, uh, was it Melinda Moyer? Moyer's book. Yeah, the... Not how not to turn your kids into assholes, <laughs> 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 which we both had our comments on. But now we're full forward to about two years out since uh, you handed over the reins as 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 the Doxmo world, and I have now been working at it for a bit. But catch the uh, audience up. What's the world of uh, Paul Smolin been up to? Well, as 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 you said, I'm living the dream. I mean, I get up and do what I want to do every day which is walk and exercise and spend time with friends. And I'm a woodworker, so I love to create things in the shop, solve problems, you know, have, have lunch with my buddies. Couldn't be any better. Yeah, it's uh, a beautiful I, thing. I was, yeah, it is a beautiful thing. So uh, two years ago, three, I guess, no, three years ago, I published a book that I thought we would probably talk a lot about. Uh, sort of a, a good, my farewell to pediatrics, uh, a little bit of what I learned in 35 years of practice uh, and my perspective on things. And certainly there's a, a big input from the podcast as well. I agree. So let's let's get into that. So the world um, has had since 2019 the Paul Smolin book called Great Kids Don't Just Happen. And the title is emblematic of. I think your career, right? So you have spent your entire career from the medical school days on to residency, and and you developed this skill set over those years of observing. And I think that's the key word here. When I think about you and everything that I read uh, related to you, and then the podcast, you're you're a master observer, and in the observation, you then come up with an ideology or an understanding of what it takes to raise a child from the sperm meets egg that grows into this beautiful little newborn baby up until we turn them loose as these functional, hopefully functional adults. And so when I think about everything that I've learned from you, either my own hearing from you or observationally watching you, reading your stuff, that, that's the word that always comes to mind for me. 
is you're you're a master observer and and then you have this little onion peeler part of you too which is my favorite thing in the world so you know for for me i i think that's if i was going to tell the audience anything that's my that's my observation of the master observer i would consider myself a little bit of a padawan to you the master well you're very kind to say those things but i feel like i've had basically two pediatric careers yeah i went into pediatrics because it was acute illness. I mean, most of it in my era was infectious disease. And I really thought the infectious disease part of it was fascinating. You you swoop in, you recognize something, we have tools to deal with it, you pull them back from the deep. Uh, and usually most kids are pretty whole after that. And uh, the story has a pretty happy ending. Or let's say trauma, you know, a big part of pediatrics is trauma. And uh, uh, same same sort of deal, you know, sort of the surgeon's mentality, you know, go in the operating room, set the bone, fix, take the appendix out, whatever, you know, and the, sh the ship is righted and, and on we go. But, yeah. you know, with the era of, you know, th these incredibly effective vaccines, meningitis, which was my, the disease of my generation, disappeared pretty much. Um, we got much better at keeping kids from getting traumatized in cars and on bicycles and, you know, the things, you know, the really serious traumas. Uh, and my, my, my job sort of really changed. My job description wasn't the same at all. And then it became days filled with Johnny can't sit still and pay attention in school. Johnny's got headaches. He's got stomach aches. My teenager says she's tired all the time. I'm sure that you can relate to that. That's probably the world that you live in now. Yeah, totally. For context, let's 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 go back in time. When did you go to medical school? What years was that? I went to medical school from '74 to '78. The Robert Wood Johnson School of Medicine. It's not Rutgers anymore. Right, and then but residency was where? Wake Forest. Wake Forest, and that's uh, where so three you years. Carolina. Right, and then. Um, uh, a year I was a chief resident for a year. So it was right. called a fellowship slash chief resident. I was the first chief resident there. Right. So I post dated you 92 was medical school, 99 finished residency. And even in that period of time, it was still predominantly infectious disease, trauma, and the things you're saying, right. It was uh -huh. starting to ebb and flow a little bit into this yeah. other world. When you were at Rutgers and, and wake, was there much training for you in parenting and the neurobehavioral side of the world? Absolutely not. There was right. almost none. I right. mean, I remember <laughs> there was a psychiatrist who come, used to come once a week and talk to us about psychiatric things, but uh, we really didn't listen too much to him. He wasn't very, we didn't connect with him. Right. And, and, they, didn't have a, and they didn't have a ton of business. No, no, Relatively. they didn't. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. Right. I remember being in med school and looking at where everyone's going for, for their training and psychiatry was really few. And part of it was like the, 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 the thought process at Emory in 96 was psychiatrists don't get paid. Number one, there, there's not much to do. And very few people were like, there's much of a career there. Now, fast forward, we're with our, we got caught with our pants down. Yes, that, we did. Everything is psychiatry based or psychology based. We have nobody in the, in the field to do it. And then pediatricians then got thrust into the world that you're speaking to. Now, all of a sudden, we're de facto trying to be psychiatrists in a world where we had zero training. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's where I found myself about 15 years ago. Right. And, and so, I, go ahead. ahead. Well, I decided that I better embrace this. This is my job now, you know, I'm uh, not putting people in the hospital with pneumonia and meningitis anymore. Uh, I'm taking care of more chronic kinds of psychological problems. Uh, and um, I started thinking, well, I got to think like Dr. M, you know, what are the upstream problems that lead to all of this stuff? Because this was not there when I started in pediatrics, uh, or at least it wasn't in the forefront. I don't know. Uh, so I uh, gave a lot of thought to that, started reading a lot. My blog allowed me to read a lot of parenting books, think about these issues, and sort of get in touch with the current parenting paradigms and came up with a list of factors, what I call ingredients, that need to be there for children to grow into what I call a great kid. Right. And let's go ahead. So so would you consider your book a, a compendium of opinions or about your observational experience, or is it a mixed bag of opinion and and fact based on some of the social sciences of the time? Or is it just your uh, observational parenting style that you've seen that works the best? I mean, how would you describe your book and how you wrote it and why you wrote it the way you did? Well, I tried to put as much science in there, you know, social science as I could. So it is to some degree uh, supported by evidence of what mm -hmm. I'm suggesting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, we're all molded by our experiences. And you can't take your own biases out of out of stuff. I mean, I'm sure I looked at the way families interacted and and it superimposed my middle class bias on the way they were parenting. But there were some things that were clearly led to to problems. And right. I think I lay the evidence of that out in each of the chapters. I go through each ingredient, what I call ingredient, in the formula, in the great kid formula. And uh uh, you know, try to get parents some evidence that what I'm talking about is real. Yeah, and I think medicine suffers from a a, a, a crisis of of having to have study data as the only metric to make decision making. So, for example, I I like Peter Thiel states, you know, we don't need a study. I think I've heard him say this once. We don't need a study saying parachutes are a good idea when you jump out of an airplane. Yeah, right? you know, there are certain things that are obvious, right? And mm -hmm. I think to your point, you know, some of these things don't need social science research because, frankly, we sort of know this is true. Sort of like with COVID, lockdowns are going to be bad, right. right? If they if they functionally work to prevent disease transmission for a period of time that had an outcome that was beneficial, maybe there's a value behind it. But they truly were just all around bad from a is from a, a mental health perspective so that we don't mm -hmm. need a study we don't need a study to say hey <laughs> lockdowns are a good idea or a bad idea we sort of know these realities and yes. so i i i think in medicine you know some of these uh, books are you know we can't state x if we don't have double blind placebo yeah i'm not too sure about that i mean there's some things that are obvious like too much screen time i don't think we need any more studies stating that's that's really important yeah. i think it's sort of mm -hmm. obvious that screen time is relatively bad mm -hmm. for kids in, in, mm -hmm. in volume so 
So knowing all of that in the context of that, define your version of a great kid. And if you want to define that as just the title, how you define it, or the ingredients that make up a great kid, let's let's sort of walk through your ideas of a great kid. And let's just sort of take your book and put into audio form, however you feel would be the best way to display your information. That would then one, give the pay, give the listeners an idea of what you know, which I think is the key, your observational experiences, and two, encourage them to then say, hey, let's go a deeper dive and actually buy the book and read the whole thing. Okay. Well, actually, that term was not mine. I got it from uh, Dr. John Medina, who wrote uh, Brain Rules for Babies, Mm -hmm. and he had a, a discussion about this, and he he did not define what a great kid was, but his as I remember reading, he just said a great kid. Everybody just sort of recognizes a great kid, but so I started to define it. And let me say, a great kid is not necessarily somebody who graduates from Harvard with an MBA, works for Goldman Sachs, and makes you know three quarters of a million dollars a year. That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about character basically and function in society so here's my definition as i defined a great kid um kid slash young adult so we're talking about by the time somebody is through adolescence ready to leave home hopefully and you know starting adult life being self-sufficient okay we now know that uh, 50% of 19-year-olds live with their parents, all sorts of reasons for that. But, it, you know, a lot of kids are not achieving the self-sufficiency um, metric. Maintaining stable employment, that can be during adolescence and young adult life. Creating and maintaining long-term friendships and family relationships. So that's an important one. Live a life without substance abuse or dependency. Being generally happy and emotionally stable and abiding by the laws of society. So this has a lot to do with character and family and family relationships. And and the genesis of all of this is the way we grow humans, which is a family event. So that's where my thoughts led to writing this book, uh, The Great Kid. Right. And and so it always it's always remarkable to me when I think about the context of what you're stating that here we are again we have licenses to fish licenses to drive a car licenses to do this you have to take lessons classes pass a test but anybody can have a child with no parenting skills no upstream knowledge of what it's going to look like how to deal with the stressors the hardships how to help create a stable self sufficient child how to help them not have holes in their hearts so that they want to abuse themselves how to help them be emotionally grounded and stable so we we do this reality in modern america where it's like here you go you have a baby have a nice day and in medicine even to some extent we have well child checks but how much time do we really spend where we can get to the parent the knowledge base that they would need to complete the great kit well, that was the genesis of my podcast. Right. I mean, it was that frustration that um, I don't have enough time to talk about this. I mean, everybody's got something for me to bring up in the room, you know, 
smoke alarms and got gun locks and you know on and on it goes so i tried to create when questions came up why don't you go go listen to this at home you know listen it's on the there's a 15 minute talk it's much better uh laid out when i can think about it and you can think about it and if we want to take it more come back and we'll we'll take it more or bring dad whatever that was the whole genesis of my portable practical pediatrics right it turns out i think i think i did help a lot of people but i think i was the, the biggest beneficiary of it because probably like you although i don't know how you get enough time every day to do all you do but uh I you know, I always felt bad. You know, parents were asking me questions. I didn't know the answers. Did you read this book? What do you think of this? I don't know. I, I'm just keeping my head above water here. Right. Uh so that, yeah, I, and that I just I distinctly remember feeling so inadequate years ago from the behavioral side, the parenting side. I was came out of UVA, lock, stock, and barrel. I could handle ICU admission, I can handle asthma, I can, I can handle anything. And then I got a parent asking me a basic question about parenting. And I was like, wow, I don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> to, to I remember point. this I remember this one parent. We were talking about some parenting issue. I don't remember. This was 35 years ago, 40 years ago. And I gave her some advice about something. And she looked at me and she said, Do you have kids? And I didn't have kids. You know, and and that would just summed it all up, you know. I mean, I would I was coming from a totally different world than she was coming from and i certainly wasn't providing what her what we needed so and i'm not too sure i'm not too sure that's in a, an inappropriate reality for her as the mother right because you and i very well know and i i actually I, maybe i shouldn't speak for you i know very well for me that i grew leaps and bounds as a pediatrician when i had my own kids i yes. think up until that point i struggled to understand the complexity of life as an adult without children. I remember, oh boy, it was probably 2001 or two. I was playing poker with some guys at, at, at in Salisbury where I worked and we'd go out at night and we'd play poker once a week. And a bunch of the guys would be talking about kids stuff and this and that. They didn't have time for this and that. I'm like, oh, come on. You'll always have plenty of time. And, you know, completely ignorant. Mm. <laughs> My kid was born. And I was like, oh, wow. And then lo and behold, I stopped playing poker. <laughs> I was like, well, soccer is more important to me. So poker went bye-bye and you really have to make concessions to these things. Well, one of the things I, I learned to do over the years is end every well visit with you're doing a great job. I do, I, I, you know, you know, it was always, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. And they <laughs> punctuated with, and you're doing a great job because parenting is very difficult. It's, you know, it's just, it's relentless and uh, they need a pat on the back. I mean, you, somebody needs to recognize how hard this is. Yeah. Especially in the complex world of neurodiversity now. I mean, I, I just, I, I think you're, you're spot on. I had a partner, Tommy Carlton, who I have had so many parents come up to me since he retired. Oh, Dr. Carlton was the sweetest man at the end of this thing. He would say, you did a great job. It touched me on the shoulder. I'm like, yeah, because yeah, that matters, right? It does, because it is, to your point, parenting is difficult. It is not easy. And God forbid, you know, we are expected to be perfect. Forget it. I, know. I can't I know. even do it right, and I'm supposed to know a lot. <laughs> well, carrots work better than sticks. That's for oh, sure. Yeah. And and we do have to tell people things they don't want to hear a lot. And so I think a good pediatrician is able to 
get the trust. So you get the trust by, you know, getting the relationship and telling them that they're doing a good job and working hard is it goes a long way to getting that good relationship. And then, you know, I, I was I tried never to be critical of a parent because I knew how hard they, they were working. I tried to guide them. So I thought, let's find the issues that you need work on and say, hey, let's work on this issue. That's that's sort of a collaborative team approach as opposed to, you know, you're feeding your child lots of processed food and it's harming their health. Well, what are they going to take away from that? You know, negativity. I, yeah, they the guy that doesn't like me and I'm not going to listen to him. I'm going to see somebody else. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah. if I were mentoring young pediatricians, that that's one of the big points that I would be giving them. Yeah, I think Be it positive. goes to the, the motivational interviewing side of life. Like, hey, what can you change right now? Yeah. That's to your benefit and to that of your child. Because yeah. again, I think everything has to be in the context of the mother-child dyad, the mother or the father-child dyad, or the maternal father-child triad. I think always I'm trying to think in that context now and, and give, to your point, carrots more than sticks. But to some extent, though, there has to be... A combination too and again maybe i shouldn't use the word sticks because i think you're very well stated and the carrots are so important but we also can't live in this world that we're starting to see now where we're not allowed to talk about something because they may feel bad and that's a absolutely tricky, that's a tricky dance we're in right now where if you comment on somebody's weight in a nutritional factor where it's the not the weight that bugs me but it's a, the size of the likely unhealthy inflammation that's coming Right. And it's mm -hmm. all, the, the context of discussion is important. I think, again, I hope the medical schools, to your point, are teaching kids. Um, well, again, I shouldn't really call them kids because they're med students now, but it feels like kids to me now, which right. is a sad <laughs> statement of my age. But you know, <laughs> teaching these kids in med school to be aware of the appropriate way to state stuff. So let's let's go into your book. Right. So what let's let's get into your ingredients. Like, so what? does a parent need to know today? Let's say they have a newborn and they're listening to this podcast. What's a parent need to know today to, to make a great kid in any order you want to do it? Okay. Well, we might as well just go through it as I went through it in the book. Um, I came up with five ingredients that I thought parents need to have. There's probably more, lots more, but these are the ones that I saw parents struggling with and that seemed to have the biggest impact on their children. So effective use of praise. I see. I saw a lot of families where Janie or Johnny could do no wrong. Gold, golden ticket, you know, they, they grew up with a very distorted image of their own lives. And at some point, they're going to meet the world, the reality, and they're going to be a little angry sometimes because not everything about them was perfect. They never failed. Their parents rescued them. They were always being constantly praised. And I saw a lot of parents misusing praise. So, and there's yeah. research on that. So, you know, Carol Sweck and Stanford talked about all that, about the inverse power of praise, that you would demotivate children if you praise them too much yeah, and, right. and never let them fail. Right. And to your point, it does lead to anxiety because sooner or later they're going to fail. And then they're always been told they're great. They should be able to do it. And then when they can't do it, all that's going to do is lead to self-esteem and anxiety issues. So right. everyone needs to hear that one loud and clear. Praise should be in the context of work and effort, right? 
Yes, exactly. Don't praise things that they don't have any control over. Yeah. Um, the next one was effective limit setting, which is, in my mind, I don't know about you, when your practice, this is the one I see parents struggle with the most. Um, you know, there's a, you're not friends. <laughs> your children are not your friends. That you are their parent. You have to set limits. It's unpleasant a lot to set limits, um, but somebody has to do it. And uh, if you do it in the context of with emotional support and understanding, then it works out okay. Uh, if you do it in the uh, in the context of being uh, authoritarian, you will do it my way, and that's the way it is. And I don't really care how you feel about it. Uh, that has a really bad outcome. Or if you just don't make demands and you say, okay, I know all your friends have TVs in their room and they, and they have Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast and uh, Twinkies for dinner. You know, I'm not, I just don't want to fight with you because our relationship's important, blah, blah, blah. You know, the indulgent parent, that has pretty bad outcome too. Oh. So, you know, there's a, a researcher uh, her name is, you probably read her, Diana, Diana Baumrand. She yeah. just died a few, few years ago. Yeah. And she sort of got this whole field going. And she said that parenting um, limit setting came down to uh, two issues, uh, demandedness and warmth. Okay. So if you're too demanding, but you don't understand your children's feelings and can't support them, you know, that that doesn't work well. They just feel like they're being demanded upon. If you're not making demands, but you're very sensitive to their feelings, well, then you're sort of indulgent. That's the, that would probably be the child with the, the TV in their room and, you know, their Game Boy in their bed and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the sweet spot that, that has been, she found, and other people have also confirmed this, is being demanding and warm. Mm -hmm. So you're a parent who demands that certain things do you're going to do your homework. You're going to follow the family rules. You're going to stay out of trouble, you know, but if you mess up, we're going to understand and we'll, t we'll, we'll help you get better. Right. You know? And I look at that as a yes. And yes, I love you. And it's not okay for you to do that. Right. So right. you're, you're talking limit setting. I sort of look at it as boundaries. And when yeah. I talk to parents, I'm like, listen, there are certain things that are non-negotiable. One is you're going to eat healthy. Two, you're going to get to bed on time because I don't want to deal with you tomorrow when you're emotionally dysregulated because you're exhausted, right? right? Three, you're going to do your homework and be a part of the family structure. So what is that? Chores, whatever that, whatever you decide uh, that to be. Right. right. But these are sort of basic unalienable rights of parenting, right? And I, I, thought, yeah. I sort of look at it like parents have rights, right? Like this world now, it sort of seems like we're getting away from parental rights. And it's like, oh, parents shouldn't say X, Y, Z. No, no, no. That just makes free range. These, these wild children who just don't have the 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 reality of being reality of having self-control in in yes. their day-to-day -day existence so yeah paul spot on on that one well have you read dr Sachs, leonard Sachs? he's a family practice doctor in pennsylvania and he's got also a phd in yeah. psychology from mit but anyway he the collapse of parenting. It's just like the whole book is about this one limit setting issue. And he calls it parental authority that he thinks the parents just are not taking their, 
parental authority seriously and they're too indulgent. And uh, we're seeing a generation really struggling with all sorts of problems. Yeah, I talk to I talk to those kids in the office often when they're frustrated with their parents. And I look at them and say, you know what the easiest thing for a parent to do is? And they sort of look at me. I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, the easiest thing for a parent to do is do nothing and yeah. leave you alone and go live their lives and not care about you. How would that be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, look what's happening here. Your parent is here with you in the struggle, loving you so much. They brought you to the office to talk about what's happening. And it's right. amazing. You see their eyes get wide open. And, you know, oftentimes one of the parents will you know, start tearing up a little bit because it's very emotional because they've been working so hard to try and help the child, you know, achieve self-sufficiency, self, you know, emotional, you know, this emotional groundedness and the kids just fighting tooth and nail. And yeah. and it's this massive, like you said, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree, Paul. So anyway, so, I think that that's the, that's the ingredient number two, you know, limit setting that pe- parents, in my environment have the most uh difficulty with what was the what was the jim dr jim fay what was that organization called they had some great stuff on this too um love and logic yeah love and logic love and logic was another one parenting program and my wife and i did that back in shoot must have been 2005 a couple years into thomas's life and i remember how interesting they had these things like you know like it's all about i love you so much that i won't argue Right. Like it's just the way uh-huh. it's, oh, it's uh-huh. just too much. We're not, we're not going down this road. There's no lawyering. And I remember when I first started using that, my wife and I first started using that with our son, he would like, just be like, I can't take this. You got to argue with me. You know, I'm a, <laughs> he's like, I'm a good lawyer and I want to, I want to argue with you. I'm like, yeah, no, it's just the way it is. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is a, this is the perfect parenting answer. Right. It's like, oh, these are the rules, buddy. It's okay. If you don't want to play with them. And yeah. now fast forward to 19, he's in college and, it's interesting to see here him come back and say, yeah, dad, I, I get it now. You know, yeah, so. yeah, they do come back and say they get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was the first two ingredients. The next one is a healthy emotional environment. And I used, you know, the ACE data and uh, uh, to make this point loud and clear. Now, this isn't not so much a parenting issue as it is more a sociologic issue, but parents need to understand that if they find themselves in an unhealthy emotional environment with their children, they need to do something. I mean, they're not powerless. And A stands for? It's the accumulated childhood experiences. It's a a physician that Kaiser back in the late 90s had a weight loss clinic. He took morbidly obese people and he Put them through the usual medical regimen and got them to lose, you know, tremendous amounts of weight. But he found that they, you know, within a few months, here it came right back. And he really did couldn't understand this. The parent, these people, this was the adult world. He's an internist, and he he realized that uh, there's something wrong with these folks. They know how to lose weight. We've just shown them how to lose weight, and then within a few months, they're back in the same situation. So he he came up with a. Uh, list of 10 questions, the ACE factors, um, that he thought, well, maybe this is not an eating problem. Maybe this is a psychological problem. So he asked them uh, things like, anybody in your household ever been in prison? Anybody abused drugs? Did you ever see violence? Uh, did anybody hit you? Were you sexually abused? I don't remember all 10 of them, but that, those are the some of the big ones. 
And he quantified this and found that a linear relationship between the number of ACE factors this these obese adults had experienced and their risk of obesity. So um, that's when the whole idea of psychological tra trauma from childhood carrying into adult disease, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, uh, obesity, you name it. Yeah. So it's, it's epigenetic, right? So it gets into your, your yes. upstream coding regions of your DNA. It turns on certain proteins that are dysfunctional. And like I, I'm looking at adverse childhood experiences right here. It's physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, which could be anything as simple as belittling, rejecting, ridiculing, blaming, threatening, isolating, restricting social interactions, then four is physical neglect, five is emotional neglect, six is mental illness, seven is incarcerated relative, eight mother treated violently, nine yeah. substance abuse, and 10 is the one that's probably the most common is divorce. And so when you look at those things, to your point, Paul, those adverse events to a child are very emotional and very difficult to explain in the child's mind. So that leads to this incorporation into the into the the systemic system. I mean, I don't know, systemic system is a strange way of saying it, but into the DNA, frankly, that the world is not safe. Mm -hmm. And somehow that then turns into many of the dysfunctional narratives that we see play out in society now. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot more. I think now in the mental health space now, and you know, we've talked about this in the past, but you know, the, the reality of the mental health piece is so multifactorial and it's being driven by poor diets. It's being driven by adverse, you know, childhood experiences. It's being driven by lack of movement. I mean, there's so much underpinning mm -hmm. the mental health world that it's, yeah. it's a very daunting task for us as pediatricians to change the narrative especially with social determinants of need getting worse in society it's sort of a mess yeah it is sort of a mess i agree yeah anyway that's factor number three ingredient number three ingredient number four was um strong parental commitment um and what i used uh as sort of science in in regards to this because this is hard to quantify was uh, achievement scores, um, academic achievement scores across the world. Um, if you look at the, the PISA exam, the Perform International per Performance Standardized something, rather, I don't know what PISA stands for, mm -hmm. but uh, we look at kids at the end of their primary education and their performance and we look at it across the world, uh, we're not looking too good. We're, we're looking pretty bad. And the, the top ones are all Asian. Um, and so you, you make, so I looked at some of the data about, well, are these, you know, IQ, you know, are they just smarter? No. There's the average Asian IQ is the same as Caucasians within a point or so. Um, when what about at school entrance you know are they they just smarter they got a head start somehow and in that head start continues all through childhood no if you look at children entering kindergarten uh in america 
Asian, non-Asian, African-American, they're all about the same um, for the most part. But somehow the Asian cultures are able to leap slowly but surely way ahead. I mean, we're not talking a little bit. We're talking way ahead. And that, to me, that is parental commitment. That is, this is important, Johnny, and we're going to do this, and we're going to support you, and we're going to make it a priority for the family, and uh, the end result is uh, a much better outcome in terms of academics. Now, there, there may be some other issues that need to be discussed. You know, it can be you can pressure kids too much, but to me, strong parental commitment is is a very important ingredient in creating a great child. And I used to see this not only in Asians, but uh, even in disadvantaged kids here. I mean, I you, you probably have families where you can just sense that failure is not an option for their kids. They may not have money resources. Parents are working a bunch of jobs. Maybe it's a single mom. But they are there. They are engaged. They are they are not going to let failure or society's message about what they think society thinks they their child should be get in their way. And it's very inspirational to see that happen. So, yeah, and that's, that's the for flip program of international student assessment, right? So okay. it's primarily looking, like you said, at at this this a way to quantify the scholastic ability between groups in the world, right? And however they decide to group it, typically it's by region or by country, as you're stating. And 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 so I, I tend to think of this from the context of, of what are the underlying societal barriers to this moving forward. And I think you're right. Culture is huge, massive, yes. right, actually. Yeah. And, and what organizational structure is within that culture tends to bleed down into each individual family unit and then goes from there. And occasionally people will buck the trend within the culture of whatever their culture is. Um, but when you look at a broad swath like that and you say, okay, well, when you look at certain Asian, uh, far Asian countries, Japan, China, you know, and, and they're leaping ahead of, you know, whether it's the United States, Africa, other countries, mm -hmm. or, you know, a, a, you know, Europe, then you have to say, okay, well, we need to look deeper at that. And I think to your point, that family structure of, you know what, you need to succeed. And, and success, again, is not a monetary. It's success in function. And function has to have an educational backbone to it to some extent. When you say, okay, well, as a family, we're going to work hard to make sure that happens, which means we're not going to watch TV all day. We're not going to you know, waste our time. We're going to have fun. We're going to do things as a family together, but you're also going to get the the basics completed, reading, writing, right. or arithmetic. And I, I think you're exactly right. I think there was a Waiting for Superman um, documentary that was out years ago in inner city, New York City. And it showed these kids, you know, were would learn if you gave them a learning environment, yeah. <laughs> even with, interesting <laughs> enough, even with the family structure that wasn't pro-learning. That mm -hmm. was the one thing I also thought was fascinating is that, you know, if you give them teachers who care and want to learn to give them a loving environment, they can supersede the cultural dysfunction at home, which I think mm -hmm. is another big piece. You know, there's there's two sides to this story. Right. So if we have a dysfunctional culture at home and then those kids come to school and then the culture at school doesn't change. Well, right. then we have failing schools, which we see all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
anyway, that's ingredient number four. Um, and the last one that I could bear it out was stability. You know, how stable is the environment at home? And because having not not having f food insecurity, uh, housing insecurity, uh, uh, support for education, you know, getting you to school, being clean, getting a night's sleep, having decent food, having a schedule. These are all like super, super important factors. And uh, the research says that if if you've got a single parent under there's, there's a long this comes from a Johns Hopkins study, 21 year follow up. If you come from a single parent family, your risk of serious behavioral issues during that during your life is way higher than um other families you know and particularly it's under five years of age so it's again that vulnerable time when uh children are very sensitive to being needing to be protected i mean that's what childhood's about you know parents create a safe place for kids to explore and learn yeah and hierarchy uh, of needs yeah, hierarchy of needs. So anyway, that's the last factor that I yes, came up with. Yeah, and you and you, and you know you, you don't need a ton of factors, right? You got five, five big ones, right? And you think about all of those pieces. Man, I would love to live in that house, right? Emotionally yeah. stable, financially stable. It doesn't have to be rich by any stretch, you know. But emotionally stable, parents with boundaries, parents who are present moment. You know, they're not on their phone sitting there. While you're right. having mealtime, right? They're with you. They're in the struggle with you. They're not praising your natural ability, your natural beauty. They're praising your work ethic, right? They're saying, hey, buddy, I see you. I see you. And you're putting in some effort. That's fantastic, right? That's yeah. like wholly beautiful, right? And they're 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 this this system of I care so much about you that I'm here with you. And that's five kids. Fine. No big deal. I'm with your five kids. But at the same point, the parents are saying, but I also have some me time and yeah. you're okay with that. So you can get bored. Right. And that's another yeah. thing I worry about with kids these days that parents feel like they have to entertain. Like you said earlier, you're not your kid's friend. Yeah. Right. You're not their playmate. You can play with them for a half hour, hour a day, whatever you deem necessary. But if you take away your own sense of time for what recharges you, you're just going to burn out and recharge yeah. the, to your point, the two family unit. You know, if you're not recharging your relationship, maybe you become dysfunctional as a husband, wife team. Mm -hmm. you know, and we're speaking heteronormative right now, but if your husband, wife team doesn't stay solid because you're not doing date night once a week or whatever you need, then there comes your ACE score when you're divorced. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. like, so Paul, you, <laughs> to me, you've nailed all these things. And, and I think, you know, we could explore this for hours each, each, piece of it because there's so much to be said about you know boundary structure love yes and uh, i love you so much i'm not going to argue with mm -hmm. you this is just the way it is authoritative but not authoritarian i mean there's so much here so for me i think this is one of those moments where people pick up the book read it you know go a little deeper with doximo i mean paul you spent you know many many years as i said as the master observer watching and seeing what made the most sense. And, you know, this is the other thing I, I, I wanted to say. Not everybody has to agree. You know, because I've heard people say, you know what, a single parent household is fine. I'm, I'm not against that. Right. I, I think, you know, when you look at the construct of what you're stating, you're stating what's potentially optimal. You're not 
denigrating a single family household, nor are you denigrating somebody who has social, social determinants of need struggles. We're trying to say what's optimal, how do we help that person, right? So if somebody has SDN needs, how do we, as a governmental structure, as a pediatric office structure, as a provider structure, how do I help you meet the Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I think that's more what you're saying, because I've heard people say, whenever you read books like you wrote, like, oh, he's just looking at it from the perspective of, of the middle-class perfection. No, I don't right. think so at all. Mm -hmm. I think you're trying to state what could be ideal. Am I am I getting that right? Yeah, you are getting that right. And, you know, I mean, it just makes common sense. The more resources a family has, the better the outcome for their children are going to be. Totally. Uh, you know, and it, single parents, single parenting, if we want to discuss that issue, that's a really tough road. You know, who can be on all the time making all the right decisions, you know, not letting their own emotions get in the way of decision making, not overreacting, not underreacting. Right. You know, really, they're human. And we have so much compassion for the single parent because it's so much harder. <laughs> to your yeah. point, like if you can't check out, holy cow, uh, that's tough. I remember, Paul, and you probably had this when you were in residency as well, but I remember being so frustrated when a mother and a husband would drop a child off with some neurological disorder and then immediately just leave mm -hmm. yeah and just they give us the basics and they're out and i remember being like what is wrong with these people and then my attending at the time sat me down and well sat a couple of us down and said listen you have no idea what these parents go through every single day they love this kid they mm -hmm. are taking a two to three day respite to recharge to keep being the best versions of themselves and these are let's say that was two parents what if it's a single parent yeah so I think your point is so well taken on that side too. We have to have compassion for everybody who doesn't have optimal, but that's not to speak. We can't speak to optimal. I was writing, I was reading an article the other day on breastfeeding and the person who was writing the article was basically stating that breastfeeding pressure, the bestest breast program caused her to have PTSD because she couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. And therefore they're now trying to state that we shouldn't as the AAP or anything state that breastfeeding should be pushed. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's completely dysfunctional, right? I, I think the answer is no, when you're struggling, let's get you help when you're struggling. But still, breastfeeding yeah. is best, right? Yeah, it's like can't criticize your child because it might hurt their feelings. You know, it's the same sort of thing. Totally. But in society, yeah. we're trying to like demonize anything that is to state what is optimal. I think that is a problem. And I think, mm -hmm. again, anyone who's reading your book, that's not what you're doing. You're basically stating what could we do to have the make you know great kids don't just happen how do we make their reality their environment ideal right and, and yeah. or anything within the framework of possibility well the last chapter um wasn't a another ingredient it was it, it just happened and there's a family that i had ne never met but i was doing a checkup on a i think it was 16 at the time an autistic young man he was a high functioning autistic young man and his mother brought in a two or three page single space typewritten letter to describe his life. Cause she knew I didn't know him, but I, I guess he needed a physical for something boy scouts or something. And uh, it just blew my, blew me away at all the things that these people had gotten right. You know, uh, they were certainly emotionally attached and engaged with him. They had a good feeling for what he was experiencing. They knew his strengths. They knew his weaknesses, but they didn't let him off the hook for 
you know, he was this is he was college bound. I mean, he to meet him, you'd realize he this is somebody who has autism, but he was really hitting it well. You know, he's gonna he's gonna be a mover and a shaker. So with good support, anything's possible when you come yeah. out of a good environment. This was a great environment he came in. He got he just got he got the wrong disease, but he got the right parents for that yeah. disease. Yeah. And and that's that's really truly what it's all about, right? No matter what you're dealt with, whatever deck you're given, you do the best you can with it and make it work. Right. It's sort of like uh Dave Rakel said on a podcast a while ago, you have a pen. And if you sign a check that's for a million dollars winning the lottery, it's a really nice pen. But if you sign <laughs> divorce papers, it's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You hate that pen. It's still the same pen. It's what we mm-hmm. ascribe to it. It's what we do with it. It's what we, it's how we deal with every situation yeah. is what we lead to. So in to this situation that you're explaining with the family, how beautiful is it they were able to rise above any impediment in the way, the obstacle and have this beautiful existence where the child is going off to college, who's grounded emotionally. I mean, it's just lovely. Yeah. And that's what, we, that's what we wish for every kid. Yeah. It is what we wish for every kid. Yeah. I hear you. What else is going on? What do you, you know, that the book, everybody get it. I'm, I'm a big fan of obviously you and I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I think everyone should just go ahead and get it and read it and, you know, get, get involved in the process of understanding the, the, the realities of helping a child become the best version of themselves. But, you know, Paul, at this point, what would you say, you know, I guess let's, let's do the golden ticket. You're, Two years since we last did our our podcast, where it was just <laughs> us starting my fledgling event into this world. You have a golden ticket now. What would in two years has that changed? If you could get one big thing changed at the uh, the national level, I'm still stuck on school food. I haven't changed. Well, I'm still stuck on what I was told you the last time. I think, which is, you know, to me, anything that supports makes families stronger. You know, I'm for. You yeah. know that we can afford. I mean, we can't afford to pay for all the the necessities of families but we can do things like making our support system reward work because i think a life without work doesn't isn't very is is not fulfilling and i think everybody should experience uh the joys of working um our educational system is clearly failing for a large group of people and so we need to do whatever that takes if, you know, uh, school choice or homeschooling or whatever it is. I, I mean, we can't just keep going, letting letting so many people uh, fail and because yeah. life is not going to be pretty for them down the road, as you know. And um, I think we need to encourage governmental programs need to encourage as many support group at home, parents, you know, grandparents, whatever as possible because the more resources a family has the more they can uh impart and give to their children it takes a village so it yeah it takes a village it does take a village so supporting family governmental things that support families that's what i would go after yeah i agree entirely i love that i think you know from the school perspective you know some of the school choice stuff makes sense to me because if we're continuing down the same path seeing the same results that's not an end we got to start now incubating new ideas new processes that could potentially change the narrative and that when that incubation starts to show results then push that back to the public school system 
So yeah, I'm with you. I think North Carolina is on the right track with adding more charter schools. My kids went through a charter school and had a pretty phenomenal experience. Um, it was a public charter. And I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, incubations of change. I think at our practice, we're starting some serious incubations of change with other practices in the state to start seeing best practice models in the private uh, practice world. Like we are not being a part of a protocol driven, you know, hospital based system. And mm -hmm. I think that's where we, we become our best versions, right? I think, you know, this is, this is how we iterate in the, with the kid at the center, right? And I think you've done an incredible amount of work over your career, keeping the child as the focus of everything. And that's a, that's something that I always want to applaud uh, because if the kid stays the focus, we're doing good no matter yes. what. Yeah. As soon as the child is not in the center of the experience, we're failing the the child as far as I'm concerned. Because then there's too many groups that are gaining yeah. power in yeah. whatever they're doing, right? And that's yes, yes, okay. and yes. I mean, it sounds like you were in, in our my 30 years of uh, practice meetings because I would always say as we struggled with decisions, hey, guys, if, let's just do what's best for the, the child. Right. You can't always do it, but anytime we can, let's do that. That's our our north star, and it led us to good places. Yeah, and it's sort of fun at fifty two now. I don't really care much about a lot of other stuff anymore. So when I'm having arguments with, you know, Medicaid or whoever, I'm like, listen, is that benefiting the kid? And if they say no, I'm like, well, then we're not doing it. <laughs> pretty simple. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. darn simple now, folks. It's like your child deserves everything the state can give them, and so we're going to fight tooth and nail for it. Yep. Love it, Paul. I I uh, I got to say, my friend, it's it's always an absolute pleasure to talk, and um, I look forward to our next one and all the great experiences we get to have together over the years. And uh, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk and connect with people, but also I want to compliment you on. I could not have picked a better person to give my podcast to. Seriously, I look forward to your new interviews and your and your literature reviews and your updates. And um, I'm a big, big fan. You're doing a wonderful job, and I'm very proud of you. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it, my friend. Yeah. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye. Well, hope you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Smolin. You know, I think back to the story of how this all came to be, you know, when I was first thinking about taking on this role of podcasting, I had no plans to do it for a few more years. And then, you know, I had just turned in my early 50s and I was like, you know what, I really want to do something. So I sort of opened up my heart and my mind to the sky and said, you know what, I think I'm going to do some new stuff. And Let's just see what falls in my lap. So I reached out to Paul and said, hey, Paul, you know, I'd love for you to, when you have some free time, teach me how to do what you do. Because he had been doing this for years excellently. And I thought, what better way to learn this than learn from the master? And so at that moment, he looked at me through a phone and said, hey, you know, I'm about to close this thing down in a week. And how would you like to take it over? And I was like, whoa, I wasn't even ready. But as is with all things in life, you open your heart and mind to something and gifts are given to you. And learning from Paul was a gift. 
taking on this podcast has been a gift and a continual gift that keeps on giving. And now having the moment in time to sit down with him again and discuss his work, his book, his thoughts is another gift to me. And I love sharing it with you all. So as with all things in life, for me, this is a statement of understanding that when you want to do something and change, don't be afraid to do it at a moment that you didn't plan. Because in this case, I was probably two years ahead of when I wanted to start this process. And it turned out to be perfect. And so when you have children, yourself, anyone who is interested in going down any road, don't have a timetable set in stone. Just let things flow organically. Let God or whoever you believe is the spirit that moves your soul push you. Because I can tell you what happened between Paul and I and now how we're both moving through this world was beautiful. And so with that, thanks as always for listening. If you have a moment, take a time and rate this on Apple Podcasts and let me know what you think. Again, I really appreciate the feedback. Or email me at newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com and tell me your thoughts, any guests you want me to reach out to. That would be fascinating too, if you have anybody you want. In the next few weeks, I'm going to speak with Dr. Peter Unger, an anthropologist, biology specialist of the tooth, and everything related to how we have teeth, and what's going on with why our mouths aren't able to hold the teeth appropriately, needing braces and having wisdom teeth pulled. And then we'll flip over a week or two later with Dr. Doug Thompson and talk about the microbiome of the oral cavity, periodontitis, and the risk factors associated with it and diseases like cardiovascular disease. And now there's some emerging data around dementia. So some fun stuff coming up. And you know, let's just keep playing. Let's just keep listening, keep talking, keep learning from these specialists because these guys are putting in the work. These ladies are doing the hard lifting, the heavy lifting that helps us all learn to be the best versions of ourselves and our children. So with that, as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.